Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school, rock school, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Is that the world of a musician? Time is marked by beginning and end of creative processes. That's a that's a good question, and, and my answer to you, having having never thought about it in quite those terms, is probably yes. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and Tammy is once again not in the studio. She's taking the week off. Why? Because we're going to talk to a special guest here on the Rock School Radio Show. His name is Yorma Kalkinen. Does the name ring a bell? If it does, you are really a fan of 1960s music. Yorma Kalkinen was the co-founder of Jefferson Airplane and was also the co-founder of Hot Tuna. He is generally, along with a few other people, including Jerry Garcia and Janis Joplin and such, he is generally the person who created the San Francisco sound. He's got a brand new book called Been So Long, My Life and Music by, of course, once again, Jorma Kalkinen. If you haven't heard the name before, you sure have heard the music. Think of a Jefferson Airplane hit. He had either the writing or the playing something major to do with it. And again, was mostly responsible or at least partly responsible for the San Francisco sound. I had the opportunity to speak with him, and when I got in touch with him, uh, he said to me, look, I got to go to a concert. I've got a gig tonight. I got 30 minutes for you. So what I have for you today is those 30 minutes. I tried like crazy to do my best. Uh, I'm going to post the raw audio, but I got to tell you, I think you're going to hear the vast majority of it in the show. If you'd like to hear the raw audio and pick out the one or two or three little things that didn't make it, by all means, go to southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Once again, southeastern.edu slash rockschool. So, for an hour today and the music he plays, Jorma Kalkinen. Right here on Rock School. On the phone with me, Yorma Kalkinen. Did I get that right? I've been looking you, at interviews. You got it so perfectly right. Right on the money. Excellent. Absolutely. I only, I only have a short time with you, so if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right into questions. Please, and, please do. Please and, do. And I'm, I, I hope I'm not overstepping boundaries here, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about one of the people that, that you started the San Francisco Sound with, Marty Ballin, passed sure, away. Absolutely. Can you yeah, tell me sure about did. Marty Ballin? Well, you know, there's, there's no good time for bad news, and of course that came as a shock to all of us. But I think that, I think in the land, you know, Marty, if it hadn't have been for Marty, 
there would have there would have never been a Jefferson airplane. You know, the, the balance of power shifted with Paul and Grace and stuff later on in in the airplane's life. But 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 Marty was the prime mover, and if it hadn't been for him, there wouldn't have been no there would have been no airplane. And one of the things I wrote in my little eulogy for my blog was, Marty always reached for the stars, and he took us with him. I just really couldn't say it better than that. Hmm. That's nice. You wrote a book. It is titled My Life in Music, uh, Been So Long. And I. this is going to seem like a dumb question, but as an interviewer, you try to find that one that no one's asked you before. <laughs> Lay it on me. What's up with the okay sign where you're looking through your fingers? It's in the book three times. Uh, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is... Uh, the answer is I really don't know. Synchronicity, I guess. I mean, I obviously did it. I did it in that original picture, and that's a good question. I have no. I'm stupid. It's a great <laughs> question, and I have no answer for you. I, I like that. We can move along. Her neon mouth with a blink and soft smile, nothing but an electric sign. Say she has an individual style She's a part of a carnival time Super seal lady, chrome Cover clothes you wear uh, Early in the book and I, I, just to just to break away, I really enjoyed the book. It is a oh, per, it is a perfect mix of guitar geek and fandom frenzy. <laughs> and being a guitar geek, I like it. But me too. Early, as well, you should. Early in the book, you spend a great deal of time talking about your parents who emigrated from Finland, and also sure. that you found anti-Semitism here in the United States. I did. Tell tell us how that shaped you and how that in some way becomes the musician who starts an entire movement on the West Coast. Well, you know, I mean, anti-Semitism, there's nothing new under the sun with that, that's for sure. And because it's just the way it was in in my personal life at the time I grew up, I think I just accepted that that's the way, of, that that's the way it was with a lot of people. I don't think I consciously carried... <clears throat> carried that torch uh into the 60s but looking back <laughs> looking back from the pinnacle you know mm -hmm. that i occupy today i think that there's no question that probably influenced the way i looked at things uh, you know generally speaking again I'm not, I'm not claiming intellectual credit for, for you know for like uh you know leading a movement or something like that but i think you know all these all these experiences shape who we are and in the time that i grew up that's just how it was hmm I enjoyed immensely when you talked about um, playing your guitar and the idea of the firsts. And every guitarist knows what you're talking about. You remember the first song you learned, the first one you picked correctly. Oh, sure, that. yeah, right. And you stated when you came to the instrument, your father made you learn songs rather than being the dad. You will not play that rock and roll. And that had to at least give you some semblance of a push forward to say... Okay, this is the instrument. Can you tell us about that? Sure. <clears throat> well, I think, you know, my father, God bless him, you know. I think that he, I don't think that he ever believed for a minute that I would actually do that. 
I think that his way of dis- discouraging me was not to say, you're not playing hillbilly music or rock and roll because that's not real music, and if you do, you suck. I, I mean, he probably wanted to say that. I mean, I don't want to put words in, in my dad's mouth because he's not here to defend himself, but, but I suspect that's what it was. And I think that him going, you need to learn two songs. I don't, I don't think that he thought a million years I was going to do it. But I was completely, as you know, I was eight up with the guitar. And so I would not be denied. So I went to my buddy Mike Oliveria, that was who say in the book, as I wrote in the book, and laboriously, without even knowing anything about the guitar or where I was going to go or what, what I was really doing, I couldn't even tune the guitar at that time. Mm-hmm. I laboriously learned to play the songs well enough so Dad, having foolishly committed himself, you know, never suspecting for a minute that I would do this, then had to go to the guitar store with me by guitar. And and that's the win. That's the succeed right there. There you go. Yeah. It's so easy to fall in love. It's so easy to fall in love. Since I have a short amount of time, let me jump to the questions that I am sure. I'm most interested in. I need to ask you about Janis Joplin. Absolutely. You you played with her very early in her career, and I'm going to then pivot off of this, but tell us about her. Well, you know, you know Janis, you know, I mean, I'll just start by, by stating the obvious. I mean, it's so tragic she died so young. Okay, I've said that. Um, when I... <clears throat> I met Janice the first weekend I was in, in uh, Santa Clara, which is in the Santa South Bay area. There was a hoot nanny. I went to the hoot nanny. I, I, I literally, I was days in the community. I knew nobody, but I wanted to play. And I looked at the saying as it kind of reminded me of what I did in New York. Great. I'm going to go. So I, so I went to, went to the folk theater and Janice was there and she didn't have an accompanist. There's a bunch of folks there. This guy's uh, Richmond Talbot and some other folks. And, I understood the sensibility. I knew some of the songs that she wanted to play already, some Bessie Smith kind of stuff. And I understand, understood where she was going with songs that she'd written herself. So it was a perfect fit for us. The first time I heard her sing, when we sat backstage to just kind of run over stuff, I absolutely realized that I was in the presence of somebody really spectacular and very singular. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, I can hardly think, and I've, you know, I've been in the game for a long time, and there's a lot of great musicians and great singers, but Janice, there was just something unbelievably special about her, and I got that immediately, and I realized that if I, if I only played with her that one night, that it would be a privilege, and at 20 or 21, you don't really think about privileges a lot. I mean, it's like the world kind of owes you everything, yeah. but, but I realized this was a great gift. And I have to believe, and I, I, as a musician, you can, I guess, see the ethereal things. She had to have blown your hair back. Oh, my God. I mean, there's just no question about it. I mean, everything about her. Now, one of the funny things is, is when, when PBS did the, the, the Janice Little Girl Blues special a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. 
Um, they interviewed me for a long time for it, and I'm not in it at all. And the reason I'm not, and, and I'm okay with it, is because they really kind of focused on her angst and her insecurities and her unhappiness and all that kind of stuff, and, and drugs and sex. Janice and I played together, you know, not for a lot of time, but in, in you know, from like 62 through 64, we would occasionally get together. I never did drugs with her. We never had sex. It was always love of the music. And so my story for what they were doing was not that interesting. However, from my point of view, I only had happy times with Janice. Yeah. Oh, I dig that. Okay, look, if you're a guitar geek like I am, you know about the typewriter tapes. Of course. You and Janice playing, and there's a typewriter. I have to, You explain it in the book. I just have to ask. It seems so straightforward. Why didn't you just tell your wife, Marguerite, to stop typing? Well, first of all, nobody told my ex-wife to do anything, ever. <laughs> but, but, but aside from that, we weren't recording. We were just, I mean, we just were hanging out and playing. We were getting ready to do a benefit at the coffee gallery in North Beach in San Francisco. And I had just gotten a tape recorder. I might have recorded my wife, my ex-wife's taping, I mean, typing, just because I had a tape recorder. I mean, it wasn't like we're doing something special. We need to record these moments. We were just running over tunes and there's stuff going on. I'm lucky she wasn't vacuuming the floor. <laughs> not that she ever va- not that she ever vacuumed the floor, but you know what I'm saying. I saw that joke coming up Fifth Street. Yeah. yeah. talk about and i do this a lot on the show let's talk about money i think a lot of people are interested in all of that 
Now look, you had the you know had the first album, and then out comes Surrealistic Pillow, two major hits and such. Right. Can you or could you back then make a living, or was this the same as you hear again and again the poor rock group that doesn't get enough royalties and has to live on ketchup <laughs> soup and such? Tell well, me about the money. Was it cowboy sure. back then? Sure. Well. Because of the lawsuit that we had with our first manager, Matthew Cates, we didn't really see any of our royalties or many, much of our royalties until the 80s. So with all those records success, we made most of our money touring. And but, but we well, we worked all the time and we got paid well. So the answer is, you know, we never even starved back in the days before we were making any money because I was still teaching guitar and making money then. I mean, we always made do. We never suffered in that way. We were the luckiest band in the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, really. I mean, there were times when we when we lived, you know, a very sparse lifestyle because that's what. But we never gave it a, a second thought because we were young at the time. And you know, the royalty thing, you know, it all it all played out later on. But we always, you know, the band always made money, and we were always really good. You we, just, never, we never ate the, the watered-down cash of a soup. Time to take a break. We've got to give our affiliates the ability to play their commercials, but we'll be back to continue speaking with Jorma Kalkinen right here on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener. If you were listening to this on podcast and thinking to yourself, gosh, this would sound so much better on the radio... Well, it can be. The Rock School Radio Show is available to any radio station here in the United States or abroad. We already have one in Spain. What you need to do if you'd like to help us out is contact your local radio station and say, Hey, why don't you run the Rock School Radio Show? It's free. Yeah, free. Doesn't cost them anything. We will take as many affiliates as we can and we're giving it away. Have them get in touch with me or Todd. I'll talk to them. Go to southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Southeastern.edu slash rockschool. And there's a little button on there that says contact us. And that's where they contact us. Thanks a lot right there in advance. Hopefully we can get on another radio station. Thanks to you. Look, I've got, a, I've got to walk across some well-trodden ground for you. You you are one of the few Later. that played Woodstock and played yes. Altamont. Correct. Tell me the summer of love, 69, August. Tell me yep. of Woodstock. Was it just another gig or did you know this is going to be something? Well, I think in the beginning we thought it was just going to be another gig. I, I was I was just up in Bethel recently, Jack, and I played the, uh, their indoor room there. And... We got to thinking about the whole thing. I remember we had just played the Atlantic City Pop Festival a couple of days before, and we had been to the Woodstock site about two weeks before when they were building because we knew some of the people that were doing it. And, you know, we were doing a lot of festivals back then, and before it, Woodstock, happened, I think we thought it was just going to be another gig. And even up to the point that we got to the gig, I think I don't think the realization had really sunk in because... We didn't fly in in the helicopters. We drove in in cars. And when we drove, we drove in in back roads, and we were still able to get there. So I didn't see the throwaways blocked up and all that kind of stuff. However, as soon as we got there and we saw the mass of people, we realized 
that no, this is not just another gig. Okay, let's fast forward from August to December. Yep. You are brought in with what is arguably the angriest and low <laughs> pinnacle point of the world of the 1960s. Uh, what did Rolling Stone say? If Woodstock opened the Summer of Love, Altamont closed it? Yeah. Well, there, there, you know, that, that, that's, that's an artful bit of writing up. You know, we talk about this a lot. And I, in a way, listen, it's undeniably true in a way. I've heard people say that, the, that, that Altamont was like the end of the 60s and all this kind of stuff. I mean, listen, time marches on. And, and and things change and fashions change and a lot of stuff changes. So it might or might not have been a coincidence that as things were moving into the 70s that Altamont occurred. All this being said, nobody can deny that the whole project was ill thought out from the beginning. And when you look back on it, I you know, none of us, especially those of us who were there, can even imagine that such a thing would have allowed to happen. I mean, everything about it was wrong. I do have to compliment you, though. When you look at the uh, the documentary, Gimme Shelter, Marty Bowlin has just been literally knocked unconscious. He has, or he was. And you still had the wherewithal. I think the Hells Angels name was Wolf or Animal, one of the two. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Yeah, you still had the wherewithal to look him in the face. And I got to tell you, this had to have taken guts. And basically said, knock it off. This shouldn't be happening. Did, well, do you remember that might, specific moment? Very vaguely. I mean, it was a long time ago. And listen, it might have been gush or blind stupidity. Hard to say. <laughs> Overall question. But, but however, before we move to your next question, sure. you'll notice in the movie that, that Spencer and Jack and myself never quit playing until the until the fight spilled over onto the drum set, and then we quit. <laughs> well, once the drums are gone, what's to do? Yeah, really, what are we going to do now? question sure in the book you mark time with the beginning and ending of bands and relationships is that the world of a musician time is marked by beginning and end of creative processes that's a that's a good question and, and my answer to you having having never thought about it in quite those terms is probably yes 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you think about, you know, guys like me and those of us who love the kind of stuff and what we do. I mean, obviously, it's a huge part of what we are. <clears throat> it's not everything. But everything I do revolves around, I mean, I've been touring all my life. And I was just talking to my wife uh, before you called me and my daughter last night. And, you know, and you're absolutely right. You know, you start this tour, you finish this tour, you're home, you're between projects. And so in, in a lot of ways, your time is marked by that. You're absolutely right. I love the way you made the line, a musician will complain about two things. Yeah. Ha- having a gig and not having a gig. Yeah. Yeah, you got to extrapolate it's, that. Well, it's not original, but it's really true. It's like, you know, oh, man, I, you know, I got to get a gig. I haven't worked or... Man, I got another gig tomorrow night. I, I mean, it's just I can't I can't imagine you know talking to a professional musician and saying that and not going yeah that's it exactly. <laughs> I mean it's so it's so absurd, but it's really true. <laughs> well, hey, how time is marked. Been so long since I belonged here Ever since I lost my way That was when I still had something special Left for me to say Willing to you Just to see your smile Laugh and look at me Held me tight in the morning child Been so long since I felt at home in the mirror Was a time I'd run skin running Down the street we used to live That was when I still had something more special Left for me to give Willing to you oh, just to see on Laugh and look at me Will when you held me tight in the morning Been so long since I felt at home in the mirror
I, I have to ask about this. You quite sure. casually, and, and you are on the level, so casual speak makes sense, but you quite casually talk about knowing Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Zal Yanofsky, Paul Butterfield. Sure. These are icons. Th- they that, are icons. That you are as well, but when you were coming up with them, did you see it, or were these just the guys that happened to be around? Well, you know, for Jerry and Janice, the Bay Area people, you know, when I was writing the book, the folks at St. Martin's Press obviously <clears throat> are looking for things that people consider to be icons because it makes for good writing and stuff like that. Now, now Love and Spoonful and, 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 and Butterfield, of course, I actually, I met, I met Mike Bloomfield before I'd really heard the Butterfield Blues Band, so he was like kind of like my bud before I became a huge fan. But Jerry and Janice and, and Pig and the group of the Bay Area people, like I explained to people at St. Martin's Press, I wasn't a fan in the same way as you're looking for a fan story. I admired these people for their artistry, but we were colleagues, so I never collected those kind of stories, you know. But all that being said, I mean, even back then, I think the, that, that I certainly realized the special things they had to offer. Like, you know, one of the things with Jerry, because he played in bands in bluegrass bands and jug bands and all this kind of stuff is that when, especially when the rock and roll thing started to happen, he was a great source of wisdom for how to play with other people because I'd never really, I mean, I, yeah, I, I kind of jammed with people occasionally, but I never played the band, but, but yeah, I mean, they were just colleagues. They were, they were my buds. They were my neighbors. Hmm. Time for our second break here on Rock School, but we will continue speaking with Jorma Kalkinen about his book, Been So Long, My Life in Music, right here on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener, you hear this little thing going on right now, this, this music bed that goes on for a minute, we do it twice during the show? This is where a sponsor should be. This is where an underwriter should be. If you or some business you know might want to be that sponsor or underwriter of the Rock School Radio Show, please have that person give us a call, 985-549-2330. Once again, 985-549-2330. You can sponsor the radio show, you can sponsor the podcast, you can sponsor both. There's other ways of doing it. So call that number, 985-549-2330, and talk with Rachel, or you can talk to Todd if you really want to talk to Todd for some reason, but Rachel's really who you want to speak to. 509-2330. Thanks. Okay, yeah. I, I got to ask about the jump from Jefferson Airplane to Hot Tuna. If sure. you played them back to back, like I just, because my wife said to me, who are you speaking to today? And I, I told her about you and I played, you know, somebody to love. And then I played It's So Easy by Hot Tuna for her. And she said, it's not even the same guy. And I said, oh, yes, it is. What, well, what was the thought process? Okay. Well, first of all, it wasn't really a jump. It was more, more like an osmosis. However, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times people go, they mark on the difference, and I listen. I go, listen. It's all about the songs, and in the Jefferson Airplane, we had three great songwriters. I say three because I'm not counting myself right now because I sound like me all the time. But <laughs> you know, Paul Grace and Marty, they wrote songs that were so out of the norm. They were challenging to figure out um, really interesting lead parts and this and that, and 
with the hot tuna thing because it was because it was me and Jack. We're playing different kinds of songs that require different stuff. I mean, you know, um, a solo or a lead part like uh, from We Could Be Together, which sounds silly, silly on uh, uh, Funky Number Seven or Hit Single Number One. I mean, it's all about the song, really. That's that's how I, that's how I I would answer that question. Okay, look, I got to ask about this. You sure. have a you have a full Ed Hardy back tattoo. I do, man. Number one, it's it's really Ed Hardy that did it. It's really Ed Hardy that did it. Yes. I, and how long did it take to have your entire forty-seven hours? Oh, come on, Yorma. What? Not at the same time. You don't want your tattooist falling asleep. Yes, but the fact remains, it is impressive. And the people who buy the book, there's a picture of it in there. Right. Something else, man, I'll tell you. Yeah, well, you know, here's something else, too. I was getting tattooed in Elvestide. I remember that. Hmm. And the other thing is, it's an, it was an, it's an Ed Hardy piece, and back then, it only cost $1,300. Now, I know that the dollar is worth a lot more back then, but still, you know, that would be a $10,000 tattoo today. Easily. I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to jump to some of the uh, the end questions here. At the end of the chapter, A Life Well Lived, you make the statement, I am no longer a prisoner of self-inflicted misery. Did I say that? Yeah, well, you wrote it, or someone no, wrote I it did. for I you. Did. Yes, I go on, fire away. What I want to know is, what is the self-inflicted misery? And look, you came out pretty good on the other end, yeah? I did. I, yeah. You know, I really did. And you know, you know, like, you know, I'm no different for anybody else. Life is a process. And I think that just for a lot of reasons, you know, I don't blame anybody for whatever it was. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it took me a long time, honestly. And you hear this, people say this a lot, but it's really true to be comfortable in my own skin for whatever reason, you know? And I think that I, I was, I've really been lucky in that I've been able to survive long enough to get there. I mean, I'm okay with who I am today. And to be honest with you, I mean, when I when I look back at at, at things that I, that used to bother me back then, I'm going, I don't get it. Hmm. I know they did, but I don't get it anymore. I really don't, you know. So, so one of the things that that I think that that I've learned over the years is that, you know, I can talk about stuff today. You and I are talking about it, and I'm and I'm good with that. My kids, I'm, you know, in a normal world, I'd be a great grandfather, but in this one, I have a 21 year old son and a 12 year old daughter. And my son is very much like me. He keeps a lot of shade on himself. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever he talks about, he he doesn't he doesn't share a lot of that with me, and that's okay. I wouldn't try to pry it out of him. My daughter, like my wife, is very outspoken about how she feels all the time, and I tell her that's a good thing. You know, when you get older, a lot of people spend thousands of dollars on therapy to be able to do what you do naturally, and I can do that naturally too now. You mentioned your kids. And I I simply wish to compliment you on this. You're an adoptive father. I am. I'm an adoptive father. Awesome. For no other thing than that, I simply wanted to to compliment you on it. Well, back at you. Yep. Did you do a a local adoption or or international? Both of our children are from Guatemala. Awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, then you know that we share something that people that aren't adoptive parents will never understand. It's It's not a value judgment about anybody. It's just it's just a different space in the world, and it's awesome. That's all I can say. It's mm-hmm. just it just doesn't. I mean, it's awesome. I, I, I love my son dearly. He's was conceived the old fashioned way, and I love my daughter dearly too. And they they occupy so much space in my heart. I can't even begin to tell you. I agree. It's hard to walk sometimes because you tip over. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's really true. That's where it would be, but we're not going to do that right now. Well, won't you come with me? We'll go Running through the mountain Just in time to set Morning free Well our hearts are young and strong You're moving like an angel We never seem to age In my dream Well I never took my time Took it all for granted Gift of life is never What it seemed Let's run like we did then like spirits in the morning We never seem to age in my dream These precious moments fly Like pages in the wind Flying to a place beyond the stars Memories fade with grace Cast away like rust And leave us wondering who and what we are That morning breeze like fire I thought I'd live forever Living well was way beyond our me Watch the dawn together We never seemed to age in my dream This morning as I woke Midnight's spell was broken Looked around with nothing 
left to need The world around us turns I hold each passing moment We never seem to age in my dream Thank you very much. I'm looking at the time, and I know you need to get to the gig, so... I do. I will I will simply say congratulations on your career, the book, and a life well-lived, and I can't tell you how happy I am you carved out a half an hour to talk to me. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you being interested. Uh, I, I, I truly honestly do. Here's one thought. Why have I never played the New Orleans Jazz Festival? I, That's all I'm I don't know. Say. I don't know either. If you come down, I'm going to use this. Uh, I'm going to use this interview to uh, somehow sneak my way backstage and shake your hand. Listen, listen. Anytime I'm playing around, you got this interview interview through Cash Edwards. Yes, correct. All right. Well, listen. You feel free to get my my. In fact, I'll give you my email right now if you like. Uh, okay, I'll cut it out of the show. Go ahead. Yeah, cut it out of the show, please. <laughs> okay, I am. In any case, you know, you put something in the header so I can free you from the spam blocker. You will be welcome anytime you're around when I'm playing. Can I bring my guitar? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Yorma, thank you. Go play your gig. I'll let you Thanks, go. Thanks, brother. It's I wonderful. It. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, brother. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yep, bye.
Broken dreams 